Howdy everyone, welcome to another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. I'm so excited to be joined by Alan Mitchell, you know him as Low Tide, you can find his work at The Athletic, TSN 1260, he's fantastic, I'm a huge fan, I hope I didn't fanboy out too much on this podcast. I would mention before we get started that... The connection was severed abruptly and is super rude and it kind of comes to a sad conclusion. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So um, as abrupt as the ending is, hopefully you enjoy what we got. Alan was super generous with his time. It was a fantastic guest. So enjoy the interview. I'm pleased to be joined by Alan Mitchell. He covers the Oilers for The Athletic. You can find him on The Lowdown with Low Tide on TSN 1260. I love his work. Alan, thank you so much for coming on. Well, I appreciate you having me on. This is a pretty exciting time for, for hockey fans from, uh, who uh, cheer for any team. But for Oilers fans, uh, being that it's in Edmonton, it's, it's, um, it's front and center. It's a big story here. Yeah, is there, like, can one palpably feel a buzz during a pandemic? What's the vibe like in Edmonton? Well, it's it's weird because, you know, there's, there's I, th- I think, a sense of, you know, excitement, and but not really, you know, a sense of what people are going to do. Like, I- I'll tell you, the Oilers are going to win a game during this pandemic. Uh, opening series against Chicago. And, and usually what happens in Edmonton is the fans pour onto the street, and that would be downtown now. It used to be they'd go out into White Avenue, and before that it was it was Jasper Avenue in the 80s. And they would just, you know, have fun and, and you know, maybe maybe a little bit of, you know, vandalism, but nothing major, but just go have a good time, fun time. And, and now with, with the, the pandemic, it, it's, it, it's a little... Uh, disorganized, and and I'm not sure what will happen, but there is there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of excitement, especially once the the Oilers started, you know, practicing and video was available, and uh, they had a, a a night scrimmage last night, and you know people were you know uh, paying attention to what was tweeted out, and and on Saturday there's a, a Colby Cave uh, scrimmage that will be streamed online and on uh, Facebook and and uh, the Oilers uh, YouTube channel. So the, the the build is there in real. I just don't know how it's going to outlet. There, there has to be a release. A pressure point will arrive, and there'll be a release. I'm not sure what will happen, but yeah, the excitement's there. Oh, that, that's that's excellent. That reminds me of in the 2010 Olympics. It's occurring in the dead of winter, so everyone's kind of just huddled up at home if they weren't in Vancouver, and they're just watching from their home. And then when Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal, it was, what do we do? And And my roommates and I, we just piled into cars and 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 went and paraded around london ontario because i guess that's <laughs> what you do when when exciting things happen but no one wants to be outside yeah it's and i think people will find their way and i and i hope that everybody social distances uh you know this area has done really well in keeping covid you know 19 down although it's up a little bit recently but keeping it down for the most part. So, uh, you know, th- this is, everybody's going to have to be very careful, but, uh, you know, this is a hockey town. So it'll, it'll be maybe honking horns or, uh, you know, maybe backyard 
distancing parties with big screens and lots of noise. Uh, something will happen, and it'll be uh, it'll find its way to social media via memes and songs and Lord knows what else. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it when we found out earlier this week that Roger's place was flooding. Uh, I was struck that this was maybe the the itchy and scratchy land, uh, nothing could possibly go wrong moment. <laughs> there, there was a little bit of that. It's a new building, and and you know, the the it's it's gorgeous. It's a lovely building, uh, and and I have been in some of the newer newer buildings, and this is a very nice one. But the what what had happened was there was two things that happened. Number one, there was a. Uh, anybody who owns a home knows that when water is is leaking in, it looks awful. It looks like oh my god, it's over, right? And it's very expensive because it ruins everything. It ruins your you know your your floors and your ceilings and everything in between and uh, walls and it's a, it's a lot. So that was one thing. But then there was a, a a photograph that looked like there was a tear on the roof and that hit social media and people went crazy. As it turned out, it was a it was a, you know I mean it was there was a lot of water in very short time. We had I had to go check my roof in, in you know, at my house for for uh, uh, shingles just to make sure that nothing blew off. It was that bad a storm, and and sure enough, it was something that does happen. And they have it. I, I believe they're close to at least having it fixed so that it's you know from the point of view of, of visually it's fine. And and that's that's not surprising, but. Yeah, I think I think the timing of it was bad in that, you know, everybody was like, okay, we're on board. Everybody seems to be going, okay, oh, no, what's this, you know? Uh, but as it turned out, it was, was uh, uh, far less than what would, had been at one point anyway on that evening feared. Yeah, it looms a little bit ominously, but, uh, but much ado about nothing, as it turns out. Uh, hockey players are known pranksters. How does one pull off a safe and tasteful prank during a pandemic? That's a great question. And, you, you know, you wonder because you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to put anybody in danger or anything like that. But these, from what I understand, there's, you know, there's there's a certain number of players in one hotel and uh, then there's another bunch of players in another hotel and then a third hotel for media and, and, you know, various other, uh, support staff. So it's spread out a little bit, but I imagine that, that, you know, they're going to have probably some basketball courts and, and, uh, various forms of, of opportunities to lay bets and God knows what else. So there'll be, there'll be chances hockey players traditionally have, uh, from, from my experience hearing various stories, they're very clever with their, uh, hijinks. So I, I, I imagine there'll be some legendary stories coming out of that. And, and, you know, I'll also be interested in seeing what their sleeping patterns are like, because I know it's all discipline. I get that. And I understand, but, uh, uh it's also going to be pretty intense in there. So they're going to have to blow off steam too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking that I might need to start getting TikTok just to see what's happening inside of these, uh, these bubbles to, to, to find out the, the real hijinks. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I have two kids, and they're both in their 20s, and they are always showing me uh, TikTok or whatever, uh, you know, other elements are. And, and you know, the, the creativity of these guys is, is incredible. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised at how many – I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but how many – uh, not just hockey players, but football and whatever sports, they have dogs. Dogs seem to be wildly popular with athletes. And and so you'll get a, 
you'll get a, 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 a hockey player or whatever, and there'll be you know four or five moments with a they're you know either they're very small or they're gigantic dog, and those are fun. It's a lot of fun and highly creative too. And I bet the fans will jump in with some great stuff on TikTok too. No kidding. You mentioned the discipline and the professionalism that is going to have to take place in order to pull this off. And I think that one of the great unknowns heading into this return is how ready everyone's going to be, which strikes me as the opportunity to really delineate between the the absolute diehards and those who uh, are a little bit more along for the ride. Like certainly they're all upper echelon, but within the 1% of the 1%, um, we're going to find out who those guys are. And I suspect Crosby and McDavid are going to be at the upper tier of that. Is that going to be an advantage for teams like the Oilers who have guys like that? Well, it, it should be, you know, there's a, there's an old story. Um, now I'm going to tell you an old story, but there's an old story in Derek Sanderson's book. I think it's called, I've got to be me or something like that. And, and, uh, in 1971, uh, the Bruins were they, they were sitting pretty against the Montreal Canadiens in an early series in that Stanley Cup playoffs. They'd won the Cup in '70. They would win the Cup in '72. Uh, but they they went out carousing one night, and they they really got up on the 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 um, the Habs, and they went out and had a, a few of them went out and had a good time, and they got a big lead in the next game against Montreal. Uh, and, and it was a substantial one. But the Habs came back and won that game. And, and Derek Sanderson talked about Bobby Orr, would, as you turned and went into the uh, dressing room, Orr's stall was right so he could see you come in. And on that particular night, Sanderson had played guilty. Uh, and and he's, when they lost, he said he walked in and he couldn't look at Orr. He said, he said, you know, he knew he was staring through him. He knew that was happening, and he could not look at him. And, and you know, as it turned out, they lost that series, and they won the next year. But I, I do think that leaders like that, very special players and, and intense players, and I, I don't think anybody could argue that Crosby or McDavid, I mean, you know, the, I'm sure they have their relaxed moments, but they're pretty intense competitors. Uh, I think it's it's, you know, incumbent on the the players on that team to certainly be uh part of the group because in in a way because everybody has a chance to win this Stanley Cup it would be uh Edmonton's best chance to win since McDavid arrived because everybody's got a shot it's all has a feeling of being equal here we don't really know who's injured who's healthy who's completely fit we'll find out but we don't know now and then on the on the Crosby point of view uh not to put too fine a point on it but we we don't know how many chances more chances uh Sid the kid is going to get he's not a kid anymore so this is a this is a big period for both of these players and and uh I I expect we'll see a lot of that. I think we'll see at the end of this whoever is win whoever wins is going to be credited with with a great deal of uh you know hard work and sacrifice and the captains or the leaders on those teams will be credited with a, a lot of leadership I think. It it just sets up that way because I think in a way people are saying this isn't, you know, you know it's going to be an asterisk because it isn't, you know, really uh, as hard as other ones, I, I think it's. I think it's more difficult. I think it will be more difficult. These guys are going to be isolated. Uh, they're they're going to be uh, you know uh, playing games, and then uh, at some level they're going to be bored for some period of time during their day to day. 
And so I, I think it will mentally be very challenging for these guys. Whoever wins will have earned it. Yeah, I'm with you. Any talk of asterisks is nonsense. It just in the sense, I think it's going to be almost impossible for a team to win five series in order to win the cup. They can, they can barely survive four series in order to have enough strength to hoist the cup. So now a bunch of teams are going to have if they want to win, they're going to have to win five. And certainly the Oilers are among them. So do you think that it is possible to win five series and survive long enough to be able to do it? Well, I think I, in a way, I think the play-in series might be an advantage for some of the teams because you, you know, you're, there's going to be some, some rust here. There's one preseason game. That's not enough. So if you, if a team can get through the the first round quickly, and I think that is key. If you if you go to five games and it's a tough seventh game that or final game, then you're going to have a, a, a you know a little bit of difficulty recharging over and over and over again. But because they've been off for so long, I think the quality, the early quality of the games, even though it's an intense time and they're vitally important games, I, I think in some cases the legs just won't be there. And, and for that reason, I'll be very interested in seeing how many coaches, uh, not necessarily bench, but, but uh, you know, send some of their players who are uh, quality or impact or players they they have counted on in the past, maybe send them down the depth chart because they're not quite where they need to be at the start of the, of the playoffs. Yeah. I think that the play in round is going to be maybe a, a bit of an advantage in round one, but once you get to rounds two, three, you're in the conference finals, you've played five, potentially, uh, you know, a half dozen to a dozen more games than someone who sweeps through a couple of rounds if they were a team getting the bye. And that could be, you know, in the war of attrition that is the playoffs, ultimately a disadvantage, even if it is an advantage in that first round. Yeah, it's... it's uh, it, it, I think we'll see. I mean, I see your point. I... The, the only thing I will say is they've had like basically an off season off, but, but your point is taken in that, you know, these aren't, you know, this isn't game 27 of a regular season. These are, these are playoff games. And by the time they get into the second or the third round, this will be war. I mean, they'll forget about COVID and, and the, the season that was shortened, you know, hockey players are hockey players and whoever wins this, as we said earlier, they're going to have to, they're going to have to fight through a lot to get there. So uh, the, the the extra games, such as they are, uh, are are you know they may they may impact later on because it's usually 16W, and I guess if you're going to win from the play-in, it would be 19W, right? Yeah, it, that just strikes me as such an arduous task. As much as I think the Penguins, because of Crosby and you know they they loaded up on. On defense, and, and they've got incredible depth. They do sure look like a team that could win it all once again. That window is still open for them. And even the Oilers, I wonder if the window's open for them a bit. I just, I think that 19W, as you put it, might just be a little bit too daunting. Yeah, and I, you know, I also think you have to um, set the, the expectations for each team in a realistic way. You know, for instance, um, you know, if, if everybody's healthy, obviously St. Louis, 
Boston, Tampa Bay. Uh, also, I'll choose Dallas. I'll throw them in there. Uh, maybe Pittsburgh. I like Philadelphia this year. There are some teams that you would throw in uh, as as being, you know, Toronto if their if their goaltending hits, you know, is good. I think that they'll they'll have they'll maybe go uh, farther than people think if if it if the goaltending holds up. For Edmonton, I think a reasonable. Um, expectation of them is to win against Chicago and then be very competitive or win the next round. After that, based on where they were and, and, you know, they still have holes in their roster. Their third and fourth lines are, are not anywhere near 50% in possession or goal share. And their, their goaltending is, is not, you know, I mean, Miko Koskinen is a pretty darn good goaltender, uh, but Mike Smith's numbers are, are, you know, and I know numbers aren't anything, everything, but they're, you know, his, his numbers are not strong. So, uh, you know, I think Edmonton winning the, the, the play in and another round after that, uh, if they, if they don't carry on from there, I, I don't know that Oiler fans would be terribly disappointed. Yeah. Looking at the playoff road because of reseeding, it looks like, to get to a cup final, you might realistically have to go through three out of the four teams that got the bye if you want to make it all the way, assuming yes. no incredible yep. upsets, which it, it seems rather daunting. Is there a team that got the bye in the West that you think is particularly vulnerable? I know I've scoped out a team, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Well, <sighs> It's funny because when you look at the the buy teams, and I'm just going to look them up because I I want to make sure I got them all right. The Dallas Stars are the most interesting team to me, uh, and, and the reason is because they're you know they they've been they, they've had stars for for years now. They've had really good players for some years now, but they've always sort of been um, less than the sum of their parts. And, but I th- I think in in a way this year they're 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 maybe stronger than, you know, than they have been in the past, and I and 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 so they're a team that I I like, but I still think if you look at Colorado, I, I really like Colorado. Uh, if they're healthy, we we you know we'll have to wait and see how the health of they are. St. Louis had the COVID worry, but they look very good. Vegas to me looks very strong. So I guess if I had to pick a team in that group, it would be Dallas. Yeah, Dallas is the team that I picked on because I look at, so since we've entered the cap era, only one team has hoisted the cup without having a goals for percentage above 52.5%. So um, that was the, the 2018 Washington Capitals. And otherwise, every other time, it's a team that consistently finds a way to have have that slightly larger edge. And both Colorado and St. Louis clear that 52.5 goals for threshold. And while the Vegas Golden Knights aren't there, it's probably because their goal goaltending crapped out this year. And then between how good they looked at uh, switching coaches to Peter DeBoer and then adding Robin Lehner, I think that they're, they're a bit of a juggernaut. And I'm terrified by the fact that Lehner is now talking about re-signing with Vegas and the thought of him terrorizing the Oilers for the next half decade in the division? Well, the, the, the problem with, with Vegas is they keep making really good decisions. You know, their, 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 their acquisition list 
first of all, their, their draft was, was brilliant. But, you know, Mark Stone, Max Pacioretty, Marcia, so they, I believe they acquired in a trade around the draft, uh, Carlson, Theodore, those are good players. And then you add, like, they have added to them uh, as time has gone on. And you mentioned Laner. I mean, the three games he played with them, it was a nightmare to watch. He stopped everything. Uh, I, th- I think they're, like, I, I think they're, they're made for the Stanley Cup final, and I think they could win it. Uh, and that's crazy because they're an expansion team, but they're not an expansion team. So uh, I think Vegas, if I had to seed them, I would seed them number one. Uh, Colorado's a mystery to me because I just don't know how healthy everybody is. They had a weird year that way. Uh, and then St. Louis, if they're healthy, uh, I, we know Jay Bomeister isn't playing, but we're we're not sure about you know uh, the the COVID guys and what what might happen there. Uh, then they have to be close. Uh, and I do, I do think there's going to be surprises in the play on playing uh, tournament too. So I think the the four teams that will join them will be uh, perhaps at least a couple of them will be surprising. Yeah, and and Dallas they just don't score. They are one of the most stifling defensive teams in the league. But if you don't score, are you built to take advantage of a team that struggles to play defense? Well, they're, you know, as good as they were this year, they were, their overall goal differential was, was I think it was just around 50%. Um, and, and you know, Sagan and Ben are wonderful players. They didn't, they didn't have the great years um, that, that you expect them to. In fact, I, when I would watch them, the, the most impressive offensive players for me were uh, Heisken and the defenseman, uh, and Rupe Hintz, who I, I I don't know how many years he's been in the league, but not many, and and he looked really good. Now I still think they have a lot of talent there, but you know this is a conversation that that we've had in Edmonton about you know Taylor Hall uh, this this past season about you know him the idea that maybe he arrives as a free agent. Well, all of a sudden you know Hall's had a few more injuries, and and you know Sagan is is you know he'll be 28. That's a little, you know, older. Uh, but I, I like Dallas because I think that they've, they've, uh, you know, they've got, they've got a lot of good things. I like the Heiskanen kid. I like, as I mentioned, I like uh, um, Rupe Hintz. Karyanov, I think, scored 20 goals this year. Uh, their goaltending was, was rock solid with two different guys. But I, you know, it, it, it's, it's can they do it? And and then the other side of it is how healthy is St. Louis? How healthy is Colorado? I think Vegas is the one team uh, in the West who you can say looks to be locked and loaded. Yeah, v- Vegas terrifies me, and they have the kind of depth that would just abuse the Oilers' bottom six if they did play. But I, I would note that the Oilers were able to take a game off of each of those teams in the regular season. So, um, yeah. I'm... I, I, Full of optimism, even though I'm trying to be rational, and that probably leads me to pessimism. Um, yeah, this, this Oilers team, they they have the feel of a real contender in that they have the, the superstars, but they also kind of have this 2013 Toronto Maple Leafs stink to them where they, they might just be a middling team in a bad division. You talking about the Oilers? Yeah. Well, here's here's how I look at the Oilers. Uh, and I have for some time. When when Connor McDavid's line is on the ice, they don't 
they don't own 50% of the, the, the shot share, but they own more than 50% of the goal share at five on five. And you can, you can see a team with Connor McDavid now winning a Stanley Cup with him on the ice against the other team's best. What changed in January was there was a second line that you could see as being championship caliber, and that's Dreisaitl with Nugent Hopkins and Yamamoto. And I think Ken Holland realized what he had when he went out of the deadline. He got two wingers in Athens, U and Tyler Ennis. He, I think he felt like, you know, I'm not going to be like Peter Shirelli in 2017 who only went out and got DeHarnay. I'm going to make... I'm going to make this count. I've got a bullet in the chamber here. It came early, but I don't care when it comes. I'm going to be ready for it. Now, the the those two lines have to outscore five on five, uh, and, and they'll do very well on special teams because they've just been that good. But the third and the fourth lines are are still getting caved. Now, it looks like Dave Tippett has has is going to run Kara with James Neal and Alex Chason on a kind of a, a big, uh, grumpy old man, although Kara is an old line, uh, and they're, they're a pretty physical bunch. And that might be the, the, the one line that they run. And then the other, the other line would be Shahan Archibald and, and a winger of, you know, the various, you know, um, candidates for it. Uh, but, but Tyler Ennis or Athanasio, whoever's not playing with McDavid, might be the guy. And all you're hoping for from those bottom two lines is they score four and a half out of every ten goals. And they haven't been doing that. And if that continues, the order, I don't know who the team that will bounce them will be, but they'll get bounced. That you just can't have that, you know, you can't have that big a gap between your best and your worst. And believe me, you know, Holland will figure it out. Shirelli tried to figure it out, but he, he ran into so much cap trouble and he, and he traded, you know, a lot of his picks and Holland has done that too. Holland has traded a lot of his picks, but I, I think that he's, he's been able to massage this roster a little bit. And, and a guy like Ennis, you know, he's a sneaky good player. He might be a key to this uh, success. All he has to do is score one big goal a la DeHarnay, and he'll be a legend here. I, I, think they've, I think they've done enough in the season with developing their own talent like uh, Bear and Caleb Jones and Yamamoto and then acquiring a Green who didn't play much and then the two wingers, Athanasio and Ennis. I, I, think, they've, I think they've reached the point where they have enough depth where they can maybe even beat a team that that has significantly more depth than they are, they do, but that those third and fourth lines, they just they don't even have to score a lot. They just have to stop giving up, you know, so many goals and have the gap being so large because the best players on the team can't outscore it because they they're giving up too much. So you referenced a, a few things that I wanna I wanna tug away at. At the start of this season, we saw. Because at the start of every season, everything's a little bit discombobulated. Systems aren't in place to the same degree, and and not everyone's in the same shape. So the Oilers were able to take advantage of that by loading up their top line with Drysidel and McDavid. But I, I suspect that it's unlikely that we see that unless desperation kicks in, uh, just because how, of how good things looked when they got Drysidel rolling on that second line with Yamamoto and Nugent Hopkins. 
I have a theory about Tippett. I, I think Tippett is the best coach this team has had since McTavish. And one of the first things he did uh, during this camp was to put Nuge on a line with, with McDavid. And whether or not that sticks or not, as you know, coaches change all the time. But I, I think it, what it did was it, it focused attention on what you, what you leave and, and what you give up as well as what you score. And, and I, I think, you know, Athanasiu and, and Ennis – have a really good chance here. And, and, you know, I wouldn't even be surprised if we saw both of them playing with McDavid at times and then Cassian playing on another line. I don't think, I think Tippett is not married to any idea uh, so, so much that he wouldn't shuffle a player on or off a line. The, the, the situation with the Oilers is that, that, you know, if, if they can get to the point where uh, they're, they're significantly, even if they're scoring at 50% at five on five, if they're scoring as much as they give up, then I think they win a series because their special teams have been very good. And you, you know, special teams could be terrible here, uh, you know, as we, as we enter the playoffs, but I don't think so. They're, they're going to have the same players in the same roles and, and they should have success. Although it may not be as, as incredible as it, as it has been uh, during the, uh, you know, the 71 games or whatever it is, was of the regular season. But I, I see I, what I see Ken Holland having done is, is given a, a great number of options to the coach. And then he's just basically said, you, you know, you, you proceed as you wish. And, and that gives a lot of leeway to, to tip it. My suspicion is that we will see uh, Leon Dreisaitl lining up with Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Kyler Yamamoto for the first game against Chicago, but I wouldn't guarantee it. You mentioned that Tyler Ennis is the type of guy who could make a splash. And I, I kind of think that successful hockey teams are a little bit like successful TV shows and that you need, you need that excellent star cast, but you also need those excellent role players. You know, you need David Putty showing up uh, looking like a maniac. <laughs> you need, you need your Dr. Spichemin. So, is Tyler Ennis your pick for that type of guy? Like we've seen Fernando Prisani and Todd Marchant step up for the Oilers like that in the past. I, I think he's a really good candidate. Yeah. You know, and, and the only thing is that, that it, it's uh, every moment in the playoffs is, is, you know, focused on, and you know, there's a, there's a light six times brighter than anything happens in the regular season. And and so it could be anybody, Athanasiu or Haas or or Archibald. Why I say Ennis is, you know, if you watched his career, uh, there have been times when Ennis looked, you know, a little slower than he does now. I looked a little more banged up than he had did when he came to to Edmonton. He he looked fast and he looked as always highly skilled uh, with with the Oilers. And I and I do think that that maybe they got lucky here with a player that's that's maybe better than he was perceived because his health is so good if ennis is playing at, at levels that he that he has in the past well you know that's a that, that's not a a bottom six forward that's a top six forward he had some really good years uh, in the nhl and he looked good he, he he looked like he was capable of of playing with high skill and and you know, thinking along with them and playing well enough to stay on those lines. I would not be surprised if he if he plays a, a, a fairly significant role for the Oilers and, and scores some big goals here in the playoffs for them. He's if he comes back and plays the way he did after the deadline, 
that's a really good hockey player. He's one of the few guys on this roster who has shown a track record of putting up good scoring numbers while playing in a reduced bottom six type role. So I'm really intrigued if they can find a fit for him on one of those those checking lines who, I mean, like you said, they just if they could just break even, that would be great. Like if if that Kahara line could just go out and turn the game into mud and no nothing happens, that would be the best thing for the Oilers. Yeah, and, and that happened in 06. The, Mike Pekka uh, was, I, I think, a really underrated player uh, for the Oilers that year uh, because you know it wasn't like he was scoring a lot or his line was scoring a lot, but nothing bad happened when he was on the ice, and that has extreme value. You're, you're probably suppressing offense from a pretty good line, uh, if you get a chance, maybe you bury it. But you're, what you're doing is you're taking valuable time off the clock and you're shortening the other, the other team's bench with a guy who uh, you know, is, is there to play a very specific role. He's not your number one center at that point in his career, but he was effective at it. The, the, owners, the, the, the way it's set up, and, and part of it is because Dave Tippett has a lot of his penalty killers on the bottom six forwards, you're, you're going to play Kara because he's a great penalty killer. You're going to play Shahan Archibald because they're also part of that rotation and they were successful. So those are three guys. And you've got the big uh, uh, veterans and Chase on and Neil. So that's four or five. So Ennis being the sixth guy means a guy like Haas is not going to play. Negard is not going to play. Tyler Benson is not going to play. Now, there'll be injuries along the way, so those guys will play a little bit. But that's, that's how I see this lining up, where they're going to go with a veteran group. They're going to rely on Jajar Carr to be good at center at five-on-five five and then excellent on the penalty kill, and that's going to be having, have to be enough. And, and to, to make up for his lack of offense, as you say, maybe Tyler Ennis is the guy on the line with Shehan or maybe it's Athanasio on the line with Shehan. Somebody has to be able to score from that bottom six, and those are two really good candidates. You've referenced the the special teams quite a bit, and certainly deservedly so. This that was the absolute strength of this team. Maybe the best special teams both ways in the NHL. When was the last time a team went to the Cup final? while basically just being a special teams team. Like I'm thinking maybe the 2012 Devils or something like that. It would be a team with great goaltending. And that's what made the Oilers such an interesting group because they, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, trying to insult Koskin or Norris Smith, but I don't think anybody views goaltending as the strength of the Oilers, but they really did have fantastic uh, penalty killing. And I think a lot of it came from coaching. Uh, a lot of the shots that came into the goaltenders on the penalty kill were, were low event chances. They weren't the high event. They were, they were boxing out really well. Uh, Larson is excellent at that. A bear really, I thought had a really good run. Uh, you know, people, lots of people are, are, um, very critical of, of, uh, Oscar Clefbaum as a defensive player, but he has been successful there. Chris Russell was a part of that. Uh, that, that, that group, um, you know, the power play, I, I mean, there's just so many great hockey players on, on the power play. I mean, in all honesty, it's a, it, it, it sort of makes you laugh because there's so much that, that when they don't score, you're, you're like, it's like a mystery, right? So, but the penalty kill is key, and, and having veteran defensemen and, and calm feet in there, uh, 
was was a big part of it. But I, I think a guy like Ethan Bear was important. He, he took some uh, minutes away as the season went along. And uh, I think they're going to be okay there. I think the, the, the fact that they're bringing back everybody uh, from earlier in the year, and that will be a key. The, the special teams and their ability to basically uh, walk out of a game with a one-goal advantage on special teams will be a big benefit here, especially in the Chicago series. We'll see about who they play in the second round. Yeah. Did the whistles really go away in the playoffs or is it just that everyone is good and everyone starts doing a little bit more obstruction. And so it takes a little bit more to get the whistle, but it seems like the number of power plays and penalty kills stays relatively the same. Well, that's what, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because you, you asked me a great question, but you, you also, you know, you're, you're, you're spot on. It's, we, we trick ourselves as fans and observers of the game where we say, well, they put the whistle away. That should have been a penalty. Well, if you look at it historically, it's about the same. I mean, you could, you could make it an argument that, that maybe it's slightly less often uh, in the playoffs, but not much, not to the point where it should make a, a massive difference. Uh, what, what does happen is the, the special teams, the power plays and the penalty kills are, are really more important because, you know, losing a game is, uh, uh, you know, is a disaster in the playoffs, whereas in a regular season, you're like, well, you know, we've got another game Tuesday. So uh, I, I don't think they put their whistles away. I think it's really important to be good at the special teams. And I, I, I do think that the Oilers have a big advantage there. And, and even though they haven't played much, I know that the last couple of days, Tippett has been very heavily focusing on the power play and the penalty kill and, and, the Oilers no doubt believe in themselves in those two game states. I wonder if the Oilers don't have a significant advantage in maintaining a really good power play, even though perhaps there hasn't been as much practice time, just in kind of the way that their power play is organized chaos because of the way it starts with McDavid being one of the most insane transition guys where every single zone entry is an offensive chance and then his ability to kind of swap sides and warp the zone as a puck carrier where he can do things with just keeping the puck on his stick and changing sides rather than being forced to connect all these dots through passes to create this extra level doesn't just elevate the ceiling of what they can possibly do on the power play more than what teams with amazing offensive talent but not the same skaters are capable of doing well you, you made a great point there because the 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 oilers on the power play can gain the zone just through the brilliance of mcdavid's foot speed you know the you you know you're going to either trip him or he'll pass you or you're going to back in there there are three options and and they're all disastrous for the for the opposition and the other thing is uh, um there was a play this year uh, they got a lot of attention. It was on the power play. David passed the puck to Dreisaitl. He was in the slot, and he turned. He was on his back on it. He turned, and he released the puck very quickly, and it was in the net. And it was a, it was a brilliant play. I mean, you know, the, the guy where Dreisaitl is ordinarily would be a right shot, but he just, he just made a quick turn, and it was in the net. And Nugent Hopkins uh, has had a great year with quick – uh, snapshots almost before the goalie is set, and I and I think that what the Oilers have done, two things. Number one, they've allowed their creativity to come out in a big way. They're always making um, creative 
passes. And then the second thing is they've just sped everything up. Everybody moves. Nobody's stagnant. Everybody's skating. There's constant movement. If you don't like a play, you reset it, but you don't abandon it. And then in the Nugent Hopkins example, he's just getting the puck away way sooner than he would have four or five years ago. He, he, uh, you know, he, he's always had offensive ability, but that guy has, uh, there's a, there's more torque on his shot and he gets it away far more quickly in the sequence than he did in past years. And it's made a big difference for him. Yeah. When Nugent Hopkins first broke in, he was a bit of a power play specialist. And then as they added more talent to the squad, it seemed like he got away from that. And now it, it seems like it's come back now that he's, he's kind of the, the cross crease option. Um, and certainly anytime you can have the, the, the seam pass guy also be able to ca- be capable of making incredible passes, that's where your your power play levels up, similar to how Stamkos and Kucherov go back and forth on the lightning power play. Yeah, it's, it's uh, um, what I, in watching it all year, it seemed like it was, you know, they, they would, they used to do this thing where, where, uh, they'd try something that would have success, and then they they would go through a long period of of a dry spell before they changed anything. But what what the Oilers seem to do now is they seem to have three or four set plays, and if one doesn't work, they don't abandon it. But they might try something else the next time they get down the ice, and they they'll they'll like sometimes McDavid will be along the half wall, sometimes he'll be on the other wall looking for a shot. Other times he's done this thing this year where he'll go very high slot and take a, a, a you know where you're, you think he's going to pass it, and he'll just take a, a very uh, a quick but not a hard shot, and he scored a couple of goals that way where the goalie simply wasn't ready for him. So I, I think they're. I think they're very dangerous, but they're also sneaky dangerous. And you know, uh, you know, scoring goals from behind the net uh, isn't a bad thing. And then the other thing is, uh, they went away from him after a while when he got injured. But James Neal is is really good down low on the power play, and he scored a lot of goals early from say five feet or so in front of the net. Yeah, I kind of feel like James Neal was a bit of fool's gold this year. Um, like obviously he he's incredibly talented in and around the net front and is capable of capitalizing on those chances. But I feel like you can find a lot of guys who are capable of doing that. So is he getting bought out this summer? Like, is it, is it kind of game over for him? I'm not sure the the, you know, buying them out would be a lot of relief. That's true. And they do need to get relief, but, it's it's a tough one because if you buy them out, I think it's six years of X dollars. It's a long time. Three-year contract left. Uh, they could trade Chris Russell uh, and get some relief. They could trade Alex Chase on and get a little bit of relief. They could choose not to sign Matt Benning. They could uh, you know, try to tweak the, the Athena CU contract. There's a few other things they could do. Uh, but the thing about Neil is he's, a, he's in a strange spot in his career. He's good on the power play. His possession numbers are, are quite good at five-on-five, five, but his hands are gone at five-on-five, five. or at least they, the last two years in Calgary and in Edmonton, he's well off what, what his career arc looked like. It looks like he's, he's, like he's less than uh, a one point per 60 at five-on-five five in the last two years. And, and that's, 
Like you wouldn't if if he was a 23 year old guy, you he would just be back in Bakersfield. Like that number is not acceptable. It's so far off the pace that that unless it's a veteran and you're trying to get him out of it, you wouldn't put him in that position to play on a skill line with that kind of total. But having said that, um, I I don't know if he's going to be bought out because it is such an investment. You're basically taking your cap over the next six years and you're giving yourself like a $2.5 million Denver boot. That's a lot of money to have to take off a cap, and they've done that consistently with Sekera and then before that with Benoit Pouliot and a strange Eric Graba buyout that didn't make any sense to anybody. So they've been there, done that quite a bit. I My suspicion is they would... They would love to trade Neil. I don't think that happens. I think he probably plays one more year on this team, and then when the Nuge contract hits, they'll buy him out. Yeah, their, their buyouts just continue to be these these choke chains that that slowly strangle them and, and just take away a little bit of their flexibility and, and ability to make rational decisions. Like the, their cap situation, they're probably not going to be able to give – Ethan Bear, the type of Clefbaum Larson contract that has been so fruitful for them uh, on the back end. Very true. And they, like, I think they made the right decision. They needed to make room for Bear or Jones or whomever. And as it turned out, buying out Sakura was the, the right call to do that. The problem is there's always this, 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 you know, uh, attachment of dollars on a buyout and and the orders have gone to that well I think too much and and they're, they're probably well, one thing they could do is they could tie Neil uh, or Russell to uh, a Jessapolia Yarvi trade where you know we're gonna give you this fine young player you also take this guy with a heavy cap and you know see you later we'll take a, a second round pick or whatever but the, you know Holland I thought he had a great summer last year. I really do. He was a limited funds. He found a way to, to offload Milan Lucic and that contract had all kinds of issues on it. It had just major, major issues on a buyout and it, you know, he had to be protected in the expansion draft. So getting that done, uh, getting that trade done was, was a big, big point of last summer. The problem with Neil, I don't perceive as being anywhere near as close. Although, as you say, it is substantial. Yeah, that Lucic contract was the spawn of Satan. Um, Chicago won the season series over the Oilers 2-1 uh, this year, including a 4-3 win in the final week that was more of a blowout than the final score indicated. Is there anything we can draw on from this season's matchup uh, about what might what the future might hold for that uh, that play-in series? Well, I, I think that that the you know the, the Oilers are a funny team when they're when their top two lines are on, they're fine. You know when they're when the, when 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 you've got Patrick Kane out against the third or fourth line, uh, and maybe the third pairing, you're there's more hell than a little bit. And and uh, Kane was was outstanding that game. He was passing brilliantly. Uh, you know, chance after chance after chance. The the uh, I think I believe Mike Smith was in goal for that for that game. And they were, you know, there are a lot of shots headed his way, and and a lot of them were were uh, orders maybe not protecting the puck, not looking after the puck, and a lot of that came from the third and the fourth line. So the Shahan line and the Caroline. 
it's going to be incumbent upon them to to be better. And then the the Clefbaum pairing with with Larson and the Nurse pairing with Bear are going to have to be out there a lot against Kane, like a lot. Yeah, I think those pairs are going to have to be out there a lot just in general if they're intent on using Chris Russell in these playoffs. But I think that they could probably get a little bit more juice out of some of their youngsters if they were to throw them in there. Certainly Caleb Jones. I've heard the notion that because of the, the long time off between the end of the regular season and these playoffs that this past year's rookies are essentially sophomores heading into the restart. And if so, does that mean that the Oilers can lean more heavily on guys like Bear, Yamamoto and Jones? I I think they should. I'll tell you, I think Caleb Jones passed Chris Russell after his recall. Uh, I thought he was the better player. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, Yamamoto in that game uh, against Chicago, he scored a couple of times. Uh, the Oilers were strong on the power play. He was part of that. I believe there was an injury. I can't remember if that was the game that McDavid didn't play. I don't recall. Um, that was a uh, that was a, a, a pivotal game. Jones is a Jones passed Russell. Bear is is most capable as a top four. Uh, right side defenseman, and he's played well here in this camp again. Uh, so, so I, like, I, I think they're going to be fine. But I also, you know, believe that uh, if if their goaltender is healthy, that Chicago is capable of winning. Like, I, I this could go five, and and you know, if, if if the Blackhawks won the series, it would be very disappointing. But they're an NHL team, and they've got a lot of veterans. And Jonathan Taves, you know, improved his play a lot, you know, uh, this past season. Uh, they've got Saad, and they've got Debrinket, who is also good. I cannot remember the man's name for the life of me, but the, the young fellow who scored 30 goals for them. Dominic uh, Kowalik. Right. That's a, you know, he's on a separate line, and he can do that. Often he's on a third line. So they're substantial. Like, they're not... They're not coming here to, you know, shake hands. So a lot of it depends on their goaltending. If, if Corey Crawford is there, we're having a different conversation. But, you know, I look at it as two, two the series is two different sets of, of equations. One is when Leon Dreisaitl's line, when McDavid's line, or when the special teams are on the ice, the autos have a distinct advantage. But they give a lot of it back when the third and fourth lines are on the ice. And, and, you know, that makes them vulnerable, not just against the Hawks, but against any team. And, and uh, you know, the only way you can improve that is by improving your per- personnel, and they obviously can't do that now. So, uh, you know, it, it's going to be fun and exciting. I, don't, I just don't think the Oilers uh, are, are so strong on those bottom six uh, uh, forwards and, and third pairing and, and in goal that – that you know, people would should be terribly shocked if it goes five, or uh, even if worst case scenario, obviously, is that they lose. But I, I don't think they will. I have them winning in four. Oh, that's that's excellent optimism. I'm terrified of the the old bones that still exist on the Blackhawks, especially Corey Crawford. You mentioned 
uh, you know, a big reason that we haven't seen the Blackhawks in the playoffs the past few seasons, not not only because they've kind of been stripping things down uh, in this pseudo rebuild, but also his injury issues haven't allowed them to kind of survive this teardown. And, and he was fantastic when he played this season. So I, I never want to root for poor health for a guy, but if ever he wanted to sit out a few games, uh, that, that would be very much appreciated. Well, they, they, you know, the, the Blackhawks, they're not going to bitch cause they're, you know, they're in, but you know, they, they didn't know this was going to happen. They didn't know that the season would end and they didn't know that they'd be in the, the 24 teams that slid through, but, but, you know, trading Robin Lanner, uh, trading Eric Gustafson, those are devastating moves right now. Like just devastating because if they had Robin Lanner on the roster and Crawford, for instance, then we would be having a completely different conversation about this team. Yeah, I would probably be picking the Blackhawks. Well, Robin Leonard alone, he, you know, he, the year, the couple of years that he's had, and then when he went to Vegas, it was like, I'll be honest with you, I, I was, I was watching it. And I'm like, oh, they're going to sign him. I know they're going to sign him, and like that's a, another major piece of the puzzle in Las Vegas. And they've already got, you know, Stone and and several other substantial pieces there. So, uh, I I mean, who knows? Leonard is is a guy who, at some level, you know, he's probably going to get a lot in free agency. But I also think he's going to get it from Vegas. Yeah, he has proven himself to be one of the most context-free best goaltenders in the league. We've seen other goalies, they bounce around. Bobrovsky goes to Florida Panthers, who their defense is a tire fire, and the bottom drops out on his numbers. Whereas Lehner, wherever he goes, he's he's fantastic. It's true. It, it, it's, it's uh, you know, goaltending is weird. It goes through eras, right? Like where there's, right now there's, there's, you know, people keep saying Carey Price is the best goalie. Uh, I, I don't. I think that's. I think he's at an age now where health dictates how good he is, and that's a moving target. Uh, but oftentimes in NHL history, you'll have two or three guys that are, that, you know, Hoshik, you know, Brodeur, Wah, right? And that's that era is like just oh my God, they're so dominant. And then everybody else is good or decent, and maybe one guy jumps up and has an excellent year. But that's your group. Uh, right now in the NHL, the last few years, you know, there have been, you know, some teams, Boston's had really good goaltending. Uh, you know, St. Louis had great goaltending from out of nowhere. But there there doesn't seem to be uh, the consistency that that we had maybe 15 years ago. And it'll get back to that. Uh, I think the, the fellow in Philadelphia, um, he's going to be a, a really good goaltender for a long time. But right now... Um, it's sort of hit and miss, and and Vegas, I think, made just a stunningly smart trade when they when they picked up that guy in, in uh, at the deadline. Yeah, I have this uh, running idea of the goaltender championship belt that gets passed along to the guy who's like the guy, and certainly Carey Price once upon a time would have had it. Um, I've, I've got John Gibson has has the championship yeah. belt right now, even though yeah. he had a bit of a down year uh, with the Ducks and uh, our old friend Dallas Eakins. Yeah, he's I've seen him a lot, and he's you know they, they he makes their team look less ghastly than they they were, you know. 
like they they had some um like honestly they they got guys who are too old to play but have big contracts and then they have guys who are too young to play who are going to be good and then they don't have a lot in the middle they're they're a little bit like the Oilers were in about 2011 and that sorry to say is where the podcast rudely ends so you know i know alan had a lot more to say on the topic of john gibson and the ducks and i had a lot more that i wanted to pick his brain about sorry to alan for the uh for the major fuck up and sorry to you guys for this thing falling apart but that it is what it is we got an hour that's that's more than uh enough of alan's time he was super generous with us uh Again, huge fan of his work. He was a great guest. I could have kept chatting with him for hours. I I was immensely entertained, and hopefully you will find this podcast as entertaining as I did. So make sure you check out Alan's work on The Athletic. He covers the Oilers. Check him out on TSN 1260. He does the lowdown with Low Tide, and you can follow him on Twitter at Low Tide. It's uh, it's low like Kevin Low. And if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, review, and share wherever you get your podcasts. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next time. 